Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut. This is Storied History, and this story is about Mexico right before the revolution. So in the last episode, we covered the century of chaos leading up to the revolution. Sort of. I didn't actually cover the very last portion. Like so many things and so many times, I simply underestimated the time it would take. So that's what this episode addresses. So I'm just going to jump straight in. We are picking this story up in 1867. This is just after the execution of Maximilian and the sad song Adios Mama Carlotta. He is dead and she is now in exile in Europe and is no longer part of the story. So for the previous 50 years, there had been many, many different presidents of Mexico, leaders of Mexico. In fact, there were so many that I'm not going to go into it because it is rather complicated and it's hard to find a real answer about how many there were. No, really, I'm serious. It is simply too complicated to explain. If you look at a list, there are 89 names in 50 years. Uh, many of them do repeat. Uh, for instance, Santa Ana was on the list 18, excuse me, 11 different times. Some were recognized by the liberals, but not the conservatives. Some were recognized by the conservatives, but not the liberals. Some were recognized by the northern parts of Mexico, but not the southern. Some by the southern, but not the northern. There were some people that had the title, but not the power, and some people that had the power, but not the title. It's a mess. And I'm just not going to cover it. What I can say specifically and succinctly and very clearly is there were many, many names before 1867, and after 1867, there were three. The first was Juarez. Yes, Juarez, just like the city that is named after him. He came to power just after Maximilian, and he restored the Republic. Sort of. Maybe. Probably. It depends on how you want to define it. It doesn't actually matter in the long run. His biggest achievement was cutting back on many of the extravagance of his office. And that's pretty much the best thing he did. Uh, specifically moving his home out of the Chapultepec Castle, which had been established there for many decades, and back to a more modest residence that was a lot cheaper to maintain. As a leader, he was okay. Not great, not terrible. He had a bunch of affairs and several children born out of wedlock. And he codified the separation of church and state. That's probably his biggest achievement. Attempting to weaken the power and the influence of the Catholic Church. And he did attempt, it should be said, to transfer... Uh, a lot of the land that had been taken from the people back to the people, with varying degrees of success, meaning not all that successful. Nothing really bad happened to him while he was in charge, and nothing really bad happened to the country while he was in charge. Uh, while he was in charge, everything seemed to be just fairly peaceful, which at this point was kind of an achievement in and of itself. He really didn't do anything except hold the position for longer than anybody else had ever done, which was 14 years. Looking back, though, the fact that he really didn't do much is part of the problem. During this period of peace and stability, he could have, he should have, attempted to kind of build up some of the institutions of power that would protect the democratic nature of the Mexican Republic at that point, which he didn't do. Remember, the measure of stability in a government is the peaceful transfer of power. And the biggest and most dangerous test is the peaceful transfer of power from one group to another. Not simply the transfer of power from one person to his son or to his successor. 
but when it actually shifts. That's the biggest and most dangerous test. And Juarez didn't really do anything to protect that. After Juarez came Tejada. What can you say about Tejada? Well, he was a man named Tejada of all of the presidents of Mexico. He was one of them. And that's pretty much all you can say about him. He opened the first railway line. He refused to expand the railways northward because he didn't want them connecting to the United States. He actually said, between strength and weakness is the desert. His essentially policy was to do nothing and to use the be- the desert as a natural barrier. And that's about it. It's kind of a weird approach, given the fact that at this point, the United States had already invaded Mexico uh, and quite successfully. And uh, the desert didn't stop them then. Oh, there you go. That's it. His biography, his main biography, is actually called A Study of Influence and Obscurity, <laughs> which is slightly insulting, but accurate. After Juarez and after Tejada came the main guy, the big guy, El Jefe, the Don, the most powerful president in Mexican history, Don Porfirio. Porfirio Diaz was the strong man of the Americas. A dazzling future was prophesied. A golden era had arrived, and it was said that Mexico had abandoned her turbulent, unproductive past and had begun to take a rightful place among the brotherhood of nations. And at its head, El Patron, Porfirio Diaz. Porfirio Diaz was a hero of Cinco de Mayo. Uh, We covered that story in the last uh, episode, and it is a great story. Uh, Porfirio Diaz was stability. Diaz ended the decades of internecine warfare. Diaz made peace. Diaz transformed the country. Diaz was a dictator. And I mean that. He actually was. He used the military to enforce his will in a ruthless and often violent way. Newspapers that were critical were closed. Rivals were executed. Everyone, from the high politicians to the low-level bureaucrats, were threatened, attacked, beaten, fired, exiled, imprisoned, and killed. Anyone and everyone who disagreed was simply removed. Period. In order to get the church on his side, he reversed the decades-old policies that returned land to the people. He granted them the church land rights, which had been denied them for quite some time. Instead of the land being given back to the people, he took the people's land and gave it back to the church and to the wealthy and to the foreigners. So he had the support of the church, the wealthy, and the foreign powers. Taking control of the military was the last piece, which he did very effectively, and that was it. From that point forward, there was only Diaz. Many dozens before him, and then only him. So Diaz the dictator is where this gets murky. Not because the facts are complicated, because they aren't, but because the judgment of Diaz is kind of a complicated one. It really comes down to one question. Does the end justify the means? And the answer is, maybe. I don't know. Did he do horrible things? Yes, absolutely. Was his regime unbelievably cruel? Yes, absolutely. Were the indigenous peoples horrifically abused and starved? Yes, 
Absolutely. Did his oppression lead directly to the Mexican Revolution? Yes, absolutely. But, 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 stability. It's, that's really important. This Diaz was the end of warfare. The chaos that had plagued Mexico since their independence from Spain ended with Diaz. And just as important, he upgraded the manufacturing and the agricultural transport from borough trains to trains. Before Diaz, there was one railroad in Mexico. One. Just one line for the entire country. It went from Veracruz, that's the big one of the big ports on the Gulf Coast, to Mexico City, 400 miles. After Diaz, 12,000 miles of railroads had been constructed. All of them zigzagging and crisscrossing the entire country. The kind of infrastructure development uh, that spurs growth and spurs prosperity. Because you can now move goods from one area to the other very quickly, especially agricultural stuff that can be moved without it spoiling or rotting or being lost or stolen. Manufactured goods, raw materials, and of course, the agricultural produce began shifting all through the country and exporting. Mexico under Diaz, for the first time in its history, became a net exporter. Stuff flowed out, money flowed in. The country was becoming much more prosperous and trade was booming. This was a very direct result of Diaz's policies, his expenditures, and investments in upgrading the infrastructure. More ports, more roads, more trains, more warehouses, more useful land. Everything that was being upgraded in Mexico was moving toward a more modern state, and it was working. The haciendas were growing. Okay, quick side note about haciendas. Uh, the haciendas are like plantations. It is a landed estate where the lord of the house has near dictatorial control over what happens on his land. It's more than just, oh, this is a big landowner with a very nice house. The man at the top has almost total control over the lives of the people that live there and work there. To the point where this is serfdom and in many cases slavery, although they don't call it that. He has a huge amount of leeway over the lives of the people, so some could be good and some could be bad. A few were good. Many, many, many of them were very, very, very bad. In rural Mexico, their power was near absolute. And indefinitely, most of South America, same thing. The landlords were the lords. This is not a feudal system, but it really isn't that far off. Why is it not far off? Because the, one of the defining characteristics of a serf and feudal system is the people being tied to the land. They're not allowed to leave it. And yep, sure enough, that's the case that existed under Diaz in many parts of the country, although not all. And all of the lords, and I mean damn near all of them, were Spanish. There was a very distinct division between the Mexican population, who are the peasants descended from the indigenous peoples, and the mestizos, the people whose parents were of different origins, whether Spanish and indigenous or Spanish and African or African and English and Spanish and Russian and whatever combination they're in that you can imagine. People are people, and that's what happens. Those are the peasants. But the Spaniards, or those at least descended from the Spaniards, they didn't call them that at that point, they own everything, they are running everything, and they have all the money. They are the lords of the haciendas, and the haciendas, as I said, are doing very, very well. 
One of their primary cash crops was henequen, or enneken. Those are very strong fibers used for rope and thick cloth. It's like cotton, but stronger, and it's hugely profitable. Remember that, henequen, because I will be coming back to it. Not just henequen, but rubber became a huge cash crop. Excuse me. Sugar was also grown because sugar, sugar is so profitable, but it can only be grown in very, very specific uh, land types and environments. So this is just a general rule of thumb that is still true to this day, that if you can grow sugar, you do. And alongside the sugar, one of the greatest liquids on the planet, coffee. You thought I was going to say tequila, didn't you? Uh, but that was actually a much earlier, by 100 years or 2,000 years, depending on how you want to define it. At some point, I would very much like to do an episode on the history of the different alcohols and liquors, because I think it would be a lot of fun, and I could drink and sing while I'm doing it. But I digress. Coffee, sugar, rubber, and Ennegan all flowed out of the country, and the money flowed in, like a river. It began with the profitable exports and then blossomed into foreign investment. Diaz was very, very good at maintaining the tariffs that were coming in from the goods that were going out, and he used them wisely to invest in the infrastructure. That's where he got all the money to do all this. The haciendas became extremely profitable. Under the hacienda system, they're not just growing things. They're, they were also doing the mining or the manufacturing, cottage industries that sprung up. All controlled by the lord of the manor. So as the money is flowing in and the haciendas are growing, this led to even more exports and even more money flowing in. And did that rising river of money, did the rising tide lift all the boats? No, it did not. Did the prosperity trickle down? Absolutely not. In fact, for the vast majority of the Mexican populations, the peasants, things got much worse. And I mean much, much Worse, the entire country of Mexico for the indigenous population in this period can be summed up with one phrase, and then things got worse. And for some of the indigenous peoples during this period, uh, things finally came to a breaking point. They came to a head, uh, and they, they came to a revolution. Not the Mexican Revolution. That came 50 years later. Half a century before the Mexican Revolution, there was another war. In ha it's almost ex exactly halfway between the Mexican Revolution and the Mexican War for Independence. This is one of the least remembered and least covered aspects of this part of Mexican history. It is the story of what happened to the native peoples in the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, I am a student of history. I study history. I enjoy history. I read history. Uh, sometimes, many times, often, just for fun, just because I want to learn these things. I'm assuming you do as well, because otherwise you probably wouldn't be listening. I do have a decent voice, but it's not that good if you don't actually enjoy the subject matter. So I was surprised, somewhat shocked, uh, to learn that there's this massive thing in history uh, only several hundred miles away from where I grew up and where I am, that I had absolutely no conception, no concept, no idea that this was actually happening. Or that this, rather, to, that this had actually happened. And my guess is, you don't either. So here it is. This is called the caste war. Caste meaning a system 
in which the people are relegated to one particular area, location, uh, job, and cannot move from it. It's like serfdom, as I said earlier. It's still a very common thing in India, which is horrible, but that is another conversation entirely. In this particular case, it refers to the mestizos, to the indigenous peoples of the Yucatan Peninsula. Okay, so the Yucatan is the portion of Mexico that sticks up into the Gulf of Mexico at the bottom. It forms kind of the southern barrier of the southern coastline of the Gulf, Uh, but it is actually a peninsula, and because of the terrain... For many, many, many centuries, it was separated from central Mexico, uh, and the only way you could really get to it was by the Gulf, was by water rather than overland. It is basically all jungle, and it's this kind of independence terrain and difficult terrain and low level of connectivity inspired a very fiercely independent people. The land itself is very dense and still is very, very dense. There are agricultural discoveries being made even recently. Just last summer, in June of 2023, there was an entire city discovered in the jungle. 123 acres, complete with buildings, a 50-foot-tall pyramid, a ceremonial ball court, which is sacrificial pit, It was all covered up by the jungle and found in 2023, lost for a thousand years, just only recently found again. That's how thick some of this terrain in the Yucatan is and was. Currently, that area is home to a lot of tourist uh, tourism, touristy beaches, Cancun, Playa del Carmen, that sort of thing. If you've never been, you should go. It is absolutely beautiful. It really is amazing. Uh, But once you get off the beaches, the terrain is basically all jungle and had remained fiercely independent for 300 years. Now, because of that lack of connectivity I mentioned earlier, they were able to maintain their independence and still did so after the Mexican War for Independence against the Spaniards at the beginning of the 19th century. The Yucatan was unruly at best. They absolutely did not want to be ruled by Mexico City. They kind of operated in a quasi-independent state. And there's some amusing stuff about um, Santa Ana and the trade disputes in the last episode when he was officially the governor of Yucatan uh, very briefly. The Spaniards were not able to conquer the Yucatan or control it after the Mexican Revolution. They were not either. Not really. Santa Ana wasn't. But was what was able to finally conquer the people was the Hacienda system. Not one man, but a system of control that was devastatingly effective. They were simply taking the land. It's now ours. The people whose families had worked that land for hundreds of years, well, they still have to work the land. Things began to change slightly, and they were still, in the beginning, still growing beans and corns and some of the staple crops to feed their families, which they did. That's what they had done in the past. They're doing it again. But now, a portion of that produce, of those uh, that corns and beans and whatnot, was being sold, uh, and the profit was being taken by the lord of the land. This 
really wasn't all that different from what had come in the past when the tribal chiefs would do the same thing. And the men that were growing the food to feed their families were still able to feed their families. So on the lowest subsistence level, things really hadn't changed except who was in charge. Now that situation began to adjust very quickly with the growth of the, not just the growth of the Hacienda system, but the growth of the cash crops. Corns and beans feed people, but Henneken, that's money. Now they're going Henneken and rubber, sugar and coffee alongside the corns and beans. The corns and beans still remain very unprofitable. So the amount of land designated for the cash crops got larger and larger. And what if they didn't want to work? Well, they were required to. They didn't have a choice. This is forced labor. The indigenous population in the Yucatan Peninsula were slaves. They didn't call them that, but that is what they were. They were required to work, and if they didn't, they were beaten, severely beaten. There was an American journalist named John Kenneth Turner who visited the haciendas in the Yucatan Peninsula during the time of Diaz. The, he was uh, absolutely hor- horrified at what he saw. He specifically said that slavery does still persist in the Yucatan, and it is the last part of this hemisphere that it is still there, even though it goes by another name. He wrote, and I'm just going to use his words, I have never seen beatings that were worse than the beatings on the Mayans in the Yucatan. Women are required to kneel, to be beaten, as sometimes are the men. Men and women are beaten in the fields as well as in the morning roll call before the work even begins. Each foreman carries a heavy club, which he uses to punch and prod and hit the slaves at will. I do not remember visiting a single field in my entire visit that I did not see some of this punching, prodding, whacking, beating going on. It was a horrible scenario, a horrible situation, and it just simply, well, as I said earlier, and then it got worse. Because the Hacienda system was so successful and because the cash crops became so profitable, they began to invite foreign investment. This is a kind of a weird and somewhat unique case in human history where you have a country was literally inviting exploitation from foreign powers into the country. They wanted it. Well, the people at the top did. The people at the bottom, absolutely not. Uh, So what's the difference between foreign investment and outright theft and exploitation? Well, here's a good rule of thumb for this particular case. If you create a situation in your country where the land is being transferred from the peasants to foreign powers without payment, that's bad. If you create a famine in the country because the land that used to grow food is now growing rubber or henequen, that's horrible. If the peasants who used to work the land growing food are beaten into submission so that they can grow cash crops, well, that's bloody awful. And if the greed of the haciendas becomes so much that the land being utilized for food becomes so small that children are now starving, well, that's a revolution. 
And that is where the caste war comes from. This is a bad one. And I'm going to just say it outright. There are no clean hands. Nobody on either side of this conflict is a hero. None. No one is a paragon of virtue or a paladin or a shining example or anything like that. Everyone here, everything here is awful. It really is. Life is not a movie. To quote one of my very favorite authors of all time, Terry Pratchett, you think there are good people and bad people. You're wrong, of course. There are always and only the bad people. But some of them are on opposite sides. And that was what was happening in the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, before I do go into this, I should mention the vocabulary. Not all of the peasants were Mayans. Many of them were mestizos, uh, kind of mixed race. They were not all indigenous. And there had been uh, quite a lot of intermarriage over the uh, preceding centuries. So even though not all the peasants are indigenous, I'm going to be using the terms kind of interchangeably. Uh, Mayans, indigenous, peasants. Uh, they're not all the same thing, but I'm going to pretend like they are the same thing in the interest of expediency and to make the verbal cursive flow a little better. The people at the top are the Spaniards, although technically they're not Spaniards anymore because this has not been part of Spain for many, many decades. Uh, but there is really no better way to describe them. And certainly by the time of Diaz, it wasn't just the people of Spanish descent. The landlords, a lot of them were foreigners uh, from, well, many different places in Europe and from the United States. They were divided a little bit along racial lines, yeah, kind of the indigenous versus the Europeans. And not all of the Europeans are landowners, especially on the coast, in the coastal cities. Not all of them are powerful, and not all of them had any money. Some of them were just shopkeepers, shipwrights, people that worked on the docks, sailors, that sort of thing. But that is where the lines were drawn. I didn't draw them. I am simply reporting on what was done. And you know, if anyone is ever telling you a story with that many caveats and explanations beforehand, that this is going to be a doozy. And it absolutely was. The caste war began in 1847 in a rural areas outside the city called Merida. Several of the local Mayans had obtained weapons. When I say weapons, I do not mean guns. I mean primarily machetes. The same tools, the same implements that could be used to cut sugarcane could very easily cut human flesh. So the very first rebels formed up in a house of a man named uh, Jacinto Pat. There, and there they formed their plans. Now, we're not talking about a lot of people at this point. It's just several dozen. And their plan was to slaughter all of the European peoples in that area and proclaim the independence of the Mayans once again and place the crown on the head of a man named Cecilio Chi as their king. The authorities discovered what was happening, probably because they were tipped off by one of the people uh, that was actually at that meeting. They discovered what was being planned, and so they executed everyone that was there, every single one of them. They killed all of the rebels. And then they didn't stop. The authorities went into a little town of indigenous agricultural workers called a Tepic, and they would not allow anyone to leave. The men, the women... The children and the elderly were barricaded inside their homes, and then the homes were set on fire. 
Everyone died. 100% of the people in that village were executed. Even if they had nothing to do with it. Everyone died. Babies as young as infants were burned alive. This was intended to send a message, a strong message to the Mayan population, of the consequences of rebellion. That they should just get back to work, even if the work was backbreaking, even if they were beaten daily, and even if their children were starving. Go ahead and go back to work. Otherwise, this is what's going to happen to you. It did not have the effect that the authorities intended. The very next day, the rebellion began in earnest. Uh, cheese men, the, the men that were supporting that particular individual, uh, those that had escaped the initial sweep and ran into the jungles, recruited everyone. Pretty much everyone in the surrounding communities flocked to join and they began moving through the countryside, killing everyone. Now, at this point, it's very difficult to determine who was on your side and who was not. So, they didn't try. The line that they drew was whether or not you had any European blood at all. If you had any type of pale skin, you were killed. Men, women, children, elderly, they killed everyone. This escalates very quickly in the beginning. There were roving bands of indigenous peoples going from town to town, literally killing everyone or forcing people to join up, which they did. And then go to the next one, same thing. The military, the Mexican military, was going from town to town, killing everyone. On the one hand, you had the indigenous peoples killing everyone who wasn't indigenous. And then you had the military coming in and killing everyone who was. This was wholesale slaughter. They're not simply killing military-aged men. They're killing everyone on both sides. In fact, they were attempting to avoid each other because it's a lot easier to kill unarmed people than to kill armed people. And so the Mayans, the Indian, would kill everyone. If you had any type of blood that wasn't Mayan, or at least that you they thought you did, you died. In many of the towns, they would only leave the women alive, and only that for pleasure. And then they would put them out of their misery after a few days. They began moving to through the jungles, and they're moving towards some of the larger cities on the coast. At this point, anyone who had any influence or voice or position at all is begging for help. They go to Mexico City first, and they're begging them for help, but this is before Diaz, so the military really wasn't that strong, and so they didn't get it. So, having been denied assistance in Mexico City, they went to the United States. And they talked to President James K. Polk, P-O-L-K. The Americans, who had been profited, profiting very much off the Hacienda system, asked him for help, and they didn't get it. Even though they actually offered the Yucatan Peninsula to the United States as another territory that they could just add to the uh, U.S. expansion. And Polk really did want to do this because he was very much an expansionist president. And he was very much expansionist into Mexico, which we had already covered uh, in previous episodes. But Polk simply couldn't. Uh, internal divisions, internal politics in Washington would not allow him to assist, so he didn't. All of the Spaniards, all of the people who had fled the countryside and fled the jungles were now concentrated in one of the larger cities Marita, and were hunkering down. They were attempting to find some shelter there, but 
there really was none. These aren't medieval cities with big walls you could hide behind. These are just cities. A hundred thousand people had fled the countrysides, and now 140,000 were hiding in Merida. They were then surrounded by the Mayan forces. Now, these are people that had a, over the last months and close to a year, had literally been killing everyone, leaving none alive. The people went to the docks to try to find ships and found that the ships had already sailed. The captains and the sailors, realizing what was happening, had got out while they still could. So there's no way to evacuate. You cannot swim across the Gulf of Mexico. There was an attempt at negotiations. The negotiations broke down almost immediately, and the leader of the Mayan forces declared his intentions to kill everyone. 140,000 people were going to be executed in the streets. That's not a theory. That is what he said they were going to do. Every man, every woman, and every child. This is not a bluff, because they had been doing it before with terrifying brutality and ruthless efficiency. It was just about to happen. There's no military protection, and within a few days, the masses would descend upon the city and everyone would die. Everyone. And then they all left. All of them. Almost the entire force of Mayans left. This is one of those weird quirks of history. It was the weather. It was the insects. A very large cloud of flying ants. Upon seeing these ants, the Mayans, who were all agricultural workers, knew that the rainy season was about to begin. Years later, one of the sons of the Mayan leaders explained, and I'm just going to read this as he explained it. It was scorching heat and suddenly there appeared the winged ants and the great clouds from north, the south, the east, and the west. They were everywhere. When they saw this, those with my father said to each other and said to their brothers, The time has come for us to do our planting, because if we do not, we will not be able to fill the stomachs of our children. They said this, and they argued and fought through the night, and when the morning came, my father's men said to each other individually, I am leaving. And despite, despite the pleas and the threats of the bosses, each man rolled up his blanket, prepared his food bag, tightened the straps of his sandals, and set off toward his home and his cornfield. And we, knowing that it was useless to attack the city with a few remaining men, met in council and decided to go back home. The city was saved. Nah, the people were spared. The max, mass executions did not occur. But the Hacienda system was not broken. And this did not end the problem. The rebellion wasn't over. Now, the more dramatic parts of it, the mass rebellion was. For the next 50 years, there were periodic uprisings as the Mayan soldiers who had gone home, some of them adopted the name Crusaders, or Crusub. Uh, they retreated south into the jungles where they could not be followed. They ended up as simply bandits and raiders who would attack government warehouses. They would attack government facilities. 
they were the first real rebels in the modern sense of the word that endemic in South America, uh, living in the jungles, sometimes even still fighting for the same thing today, uh, land rights. At one point, they actually proclaimed the Independent Republic of Santa Cruz, which oddly enough was recognized by Great Britain for a very short time. And during that time, there was an actual Mayan nation in the 19th century, late 19th century, located in the extreme south of Mexico. This goes on for decades. And although it doesn't become a large-scale engagement, uh, the rebellions really did continue up until the beginning of Diaz's reign. When he had the money and the will and the control, he sent a large contingent of the military into the Yucatan Peninsula to put them down, and they did. It wasn't politics. It wasn't land reform that ended the rebellions after decades. It was guns, very specifically machine guns. It was a technological superiority that could not be matched. The mines did not get what they wanted. They were simply no longer able to fight. To attack people with machetes when they have a muzzle-loading weapon is one thing because that weapon can only be fired once or twice in a minute, or maybe three times if you're very, very good. That's one thing. But to throw yourself en masse into a machine gun fire where everyone is going to die is something quite different. Our leaders of the rebels actually met from the different regions that got together. Uh, and after checking their, their storehouses, uh, their ammunitions, their, the weapons they had, the lack of machine guns, they realized they couldn't do it. So they retreated into the jungle for one last time. They decided to set fire to the towns and disperse, which they did. They promised to meet again after every full moon, which they didn't. Diaz crushed them mercilessly and ruthlessly. Anyone that was still standing after his sweep was put down. And that was the end. That Thus ends the last great indigenous rebellion on the American continent. Well, the North American continent. The caste war was a failure from the perspective of the Mayans, uh, but it was a little bit of uh, a harbinger of what would come later because of the land rights. Diaz, when he took over, made peace with the church, giving their land back. And they got the same thing that they had been wanting ever since the initial Mexican War for Independence. They got it. And that's how he made peace with the church. He could have tried to make peace with land reform with the peasants, but he simply chose not to. And probably because it was just so profitable to just exploit the peasant labor and the indigenous labor for profit. You can make a lot of money if you don't pay your workers and instead just beat them until they work. Slaves. They were slaves. They weren't called that, but that's what they were. So that revolution ended in 1901. It is a hell of a story. About 10 years later, another revolution began. In 1910, Porfirio Diaz, Don Porfirio, was 80 years old. He had been born when California and Texas were still a part of Mexico. He had fought in the famous Battle of Cinco de Mayo to stop the French. Most people in the country did not remember any other president than Diaz, the dictator, the country enjoyed his peace, although even at the end of his reign, he was already being compared to the peace 
of the graveyard. We do have peace, but it is the peace of death. Paz de muerta. Diaz put all of his money, authority, power into stability and control. He firmly believed that there was no need for change in Mexico because business was booming. There were clear economic, political, and social unrest throughout the country. But while there was still huge amounts of money flowing in and flowing out, the people at the top simply did not care. They became wealthier and wealthier. While 90% of the country's inhabitants lived in abject poverty, three-quarters of them were indigenous, according to the country's ruling class, they were a burden. They were ignorant, lazy, and were only there to be oppressed, to subjugated, and exploited to death under the Mexican sun. We were tough, admitted Diaz at the end of his era, at the end of his life. The poor are so ignorant that they have no power. We were tough, sometimes to the point of being cruel, but all of this was necessary for the life and the progress of the nation. Was it? Does the end justify the means? I don't know. Diaz changed the entire country. He brought them forward. He built the infrastructure. He stopped the constant fighting between the military and the powers that be, between the regional governments and the regional powers and the church. He ended decades of constant warfare that swept the entire country at the cost of, well, the peace of the grave. Don Porfirio always resolved any internal conflicts in favor of foreign interests and foreign powers. And sometimes against the very foreign powers that he had fought against in Cinco de Mayo. At the very end of his life, he actually gave an interview where he said, and we don't know if he actually meant this or not. Maybe he really was just the ramblings of an old man. Or maybe he believed it, but it was just lip service that didn't have any meaning behind it. I don't know. Maybe he didn't believe the words at all. Maybe he was just trying to assuage, to tamp down the rising unrest and discontent. Maybe he did. I don't know. But what he did say is, I will welcome any opposition party if it appears. I will see it as a blessing and not as an evil. And if it can develop power and not to exploit but to rule, I will stand by it. I will support it, advise it, and forget myself in the successful inauguration of a complete democratic government in this country. He is essentially saying that he would step down if an opposition party rose and that he would end his life as an advisor rather than as El Jefe. Whether or not he meant it, I don't know. doesn't matter, really. It honestly doesn't matter if he meant it or not because it was that interview. That interview, that statement is what kicked off the Mexican Revolution. And I will cover that in the next episode. I initially started doing these because I wanted to learn more about Pancho Villa, uh, because I just think he's fascinating. But having looking into Pancho Villa and the life of the Mexican Revolution, I realized that I needed some background as to what came before. And looking at that, I realized I didn't really understand it, so I needed to go back and to go back and to go back, and so I did. And it's been a long trip, and I hope you have enjoyed this trip. I hope you... Uh, well, I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I did, because I really did. <laughs> but we are finally here. The Mexican Revolution begins in the next episode, I assure you. 
And no, that's not entirely true. In fact, it's exactly wrong. It will not be the next episode. The next episode is going to be about Mardi Gras, because that's what's going on in my part of the world, and I'm going to do about a history of the traditions of Mardi Gras. But the one after that, I assure you, will be about the Mexican Revolution that will have a lot to do with Pancho Villa. My name is Charles Chestnut. This has been Storied History. If you do want to hear more of these stories, look around. We have a subscribe button somewhere. You're going to have to go find that on your own. Although I promise I didn't try to hide it. If you hit that button, I will get the next story to you. I hope you have enjoyed this one. Viva Mexico. Viva la revolucion. Viva. Storied History is written and recorded by Charles Chestnut, with audio production and original music by Seamus O'Connor. If you'd like this episode, please like it, subscribe, and we'll see you in the next one.